0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. A report by financial news and content company 24-7 Wall Street identified the 25 most segregated cities in America. Four are in Georgia, one in the top five. Atlanta, Sandy Springs, Roswell is number 22. Columbus comes in at 19. Macon, number 11. And Albany, Georgia, is at number three. Well, segregation is a huge topic with deep roots and far-reaching branches, and we're talking today with three people who offer breadth and depth on the causes and effects of a persistent American reality, which may not be quite what you think. Lee Formwalt is a former professor at Albany State University and author of Looking Back, Moving Forward. He's with us from WFIU in Indiana, and Lee, welcome. I'm glad to be here. Sharice Stevens is CEO at Georgia Wellness and Fitness Festival, host of Macon Conversation Series, joining us from GBB in Macon. And Sharice, thank you so much.
1: I am so pleased to be with you guys today.
0: And also Richard Rostein. He's a distinguished fellow from the Economic Policy Institute and author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. With us from Wellfleet, Massachusetts, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time thank you all right so the maps from this 24 7 wall street report are telling predominantly black areas shown in pink in this case crammed into the center of each of these cities in small dense districts well richard how about you this is by design not de facto as many people think segregation is within cities how did that come to be
2: yes you're right Uh, we have a national myth that residential segregation in every metropolitan area in this country happened by accident because of private bigotry or the actions of private actors like banks or real estate agents. But in fact, while certainly private bigotry existed and banks and real estate agents discriminated, this was all designed and created and structured by federal, state, and local policy. Our residential segregation today is as much a civil rights violation as much a violation of the Constitution as the segregations that we abolished in the 20th century, Mm -hmm. like water fountains or buses or schools or universities. Uh, There were many federal policies that were explicitly designed to ensure that African-Americans and whites could not live near one another in any uh, city in the country. Uh, There were also state and local policies that did so as well. And without those policies, private bigotry could not have segregated this country it required federal, state, and local support. And if you'd like, I can describe some of those policies to you. I'd love to. I'd love but to, I'd love to put a
0: point in that, and then come back to those policies. We've got number two on the list, Detroit, which may not be incredibly surprising. But number one spot, Pine Bluff, Arizona. Big oh. cities and small alike. Lee, let's get to Albany. What does segregation look like in a smaller city like Albany?
3: Well, the black section of town is on the east side and the south side of the community. The uh, white population has uh, diminished significantly and uh, you have the growth of a bedroom community, Lee County, which is the other part of the Albany Metropolitan Statistical Area, and uh, that area has grown significantly. In 1900, both Doherty County, where Albany is, and uh, Lee County were predominantly black agricultural counties. That all changed in the mid-century when uh, Doherty County became much whiter as a result of black out-migration, part of the great movement to the northern cities, and uh, the influx of whites who had had some experience because of the Second World War and the bases in that area, military bases in that area, and also because of the number of uh, new plants that were established uh, in Doherty County. You have this growing white population, and for two decades in the 1950s and 1960s, whites outnumber African-Americans. But then something interesting happens. Outflow of people from Doherty County was duplicated in Lee County, but then that changed. Blacks continued to leave Lee County, but whites continued to move in at much higher rates, and many of those were from next door in Doherty County. And it's not coincidental that that really took off in the 1970s when desegregation of the public
1: schools occurred
0: how about in macon sharice residential segregation what does it look like there
1: yeah so i've lived in macon my entire life instead of my you know my college days so i can tell you the first few years of my schooling uh i don't remember seeing one white person in my school um macon is structured in which north macon is mostly um, the white people and South is mostly black people, and most of our public schools are um, black, and private schools are whites, and even neighborhoods, which is kind of weird to say when, you, like he was saying, your black neighborhood and white neighborhood. We say the exact same thing here in Macon oh, that's a black neighborhood, instead of that being quote unquote that neighborhood. So I've lived it hand. And the surprising thing is, I'm close to 50, and I've really not seen any
0: changes. Uh huh. Okay, so I want to pick up on this idea that Richard talked about earlier that there were specific policies in the early 20th century that created segregation. Richard, can you run through those for us?
2: Sure, and I'd add that it was through the mid 20th century, it just wasn't the early 20th mm-hmm. century. Um, the federal government pursued a policy of segregation in all its programs. Uh, beginning in the New Deal when the federal government first got involved in housing. You know, the very first public housing project in the country was built in an integrated area uh, outside Atlanta. The area was called the Flats. Uh, the federal government demolished housing in there, that area. It was integrated and built a project for whites only, forcing the African Americans who were living in that area to double up with relatives and find less adequate housing Elsewhere. There were many integrated neighborhoods uh, in the country at that time, many more than there are today, uh, for the simple reason that uh, workers didn't have automobiles to get to work, and so they had to live within walk- walking distance of their factories in, in a downtown factory district. And right. so, if you had a factory district with African American and white workers, they all were living in broadly the same areas. So, that pattern of segregation was um, enforced by the federal government, not only in Atlanta, but throughout the country. Uh, The great African-American novelist and poet uh, Langston Hughes described how he grew up in the uh, early 20th century in an integrated Cleveland neighborhood, downtown Cleveland. We don't think of downtown Cleveland as being integrated today. But the Public Works Administration, the first New Deal agency, demolished housing in an integrated neighborhood to build two separate projects, one for blacks and one for whites, uh, creating a pattern of segregation that exists uh, still to this day. Uh, One of the biggest programs that the federal government pursued was beginning in the 1940s and uh, 1950s uh, with returning war veterans. It embarked on a program to suburbanize the entire white population into single-family homes in all white suburbs. This was an explicit program of the federal government. African-Americans were prohibited from participating in it. If a builder wanted to build a suburban subdivision, Uh, perhaps the most famous of them is Levittown, east of New York City, but Mm -hmm. they were everywhere in the country, outside Atlanta as well. Uh, The builder had to go to the Federal Housing Administration to get approval for guarantees for his bank loans to build a development. And the Federal Housing Administration would issue guarantees only to builders who would refuse to sell to African Americans. The Federal Housing Administration's manual, written manual, not only prohibited bank guarantees for developers who would sell to African-Americans, it even prohibited bank guarantees to developers of all white sub- suburbs who would locate their suburbs near where African-Americans were living because, in the words of the Federal Policy Manual, it would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. So that that's was how actually, actually
0: stated in the policy?
2: Yes, that's how explicit this federal policy was. And the effects of that, Exist to this day, and actually they compound to this day because those suburban developments for whites only from which African Americans were prohibited from living sold in the mid twentieth century for very modest prices. They were modest homes designed for returning war veterans about a seventy five thousand to one hundred thousand dollars in today 's money. Uh, today, those homes sell for three hundred four hundred five hundred thousand uh, dollars the White families who bought those homes uh, with federal subsidies uh, gained wealth over the next few generations from the appreciation and the value of their homes. They used that wealth to send their children to college. They used it to perhaps finance temporary emergencies or to subsidize their own retirements or to bequeath wealth to their own children. So this wealth gap that we have today, this enormous wealth gap that we have today is attributable in large part to unconstitutional racial federal policy. That explains why we continue to have segregation today.
0: Well, you are unpacking so much here, and I'd love to dig into it. That is Richard Rothstein. He's author of the book, Col- The Color of Law, and also narrator of a short animated film called Segregated by Design, available online. Also, Lee Formwalt is with us, author of Looking Back, Moving Forward, and Cherise Stevens of from Macon Conversations. Cherise, did you want to add something to that? I did. We talked about
1: the policies, but all of these cities have in common the disparity between incomes, between their black and white residents, and it shows in the housing opportunities that they have. Here in Macon, we are a huge renter's um, community. So uh, we've had people live in the houses for 40 and 50 years, but they've rented for 40 or 50 years. Some of these people are hardworking people. No one told them about uh, the process of owning a home. Um, Number two, uh, like Pleasant Hill, which is where we have one of our offices is, it was the only place uh, in the early uh, 1900s that black people could actually live uh, in the city of Macon. And it's still a viable community now. It's gone through a lot, but uh, even in that space, a lot of the homeowners or a lot of the people in there are not homeowners.
0: So, uh, Richard, this is something, uh, you know, and uh, Lee, you also spoke to this, that people moved out of the neighborhood, the black people moved out of the neighborhood, and white people moved into Lee County uh, from Doherty County. Richard is posing this as something that happened absolutely by design, but you said that it was in response to what went on in desegregation, Brown versus Board of Education. How did these two come together?
3: Yeah, well, the situation in southwest Georgia was that desegregation of the public schools didn't happen until uh, the late 60s, early 70s. Once that happens, white folks start getting frightened about the fact that their children might have to go to school with black children. And so they they make the move that will allow them to escape from that. And so they fled to Lee County, and Lee County became whiter and... uh, You had people then deciding that whiter schools were better schools, so therefore, we better get out of here. My own personal experience was interesting. We had moved to a neighborhood on the southeast side of town, and it was a mixed neighborhood. And our kids were zoned for what had been the black high school in the days of segregation. There were people who looked at us like we were very strange, that we would want to live in that area mm-hmm. and send our kids well, to that school. I had a guy come up to Mass one Sunday at church. He was a lawyer, and he offered to legally adopt our kids so that they would appear with an address in a whiter part of town and go to a whiter high school. That's sounds crazy
0: things. That is crazy. And, you know, you're talking about something that establishes a way forward. This is something that I was hearing from both Sharice uh, and Richard, the historical kind of what happens in a neighborhood and what happens to wealth in particular, when you are not offered these opportunities for education. Richard, I'd love to hear you go a little bit into that, you know, sort of what you talked about was policy separating the races for a number of different reasons, and I'd love to dig into the rationale on that more as the as we continue. But how does prejudice and policy intersect in these cases in isolating different neighborhoods?
2: Well, that's a very, very brilliant question you've asked, because in fact, private bigotry and public policy reinforce each other. White flight is a good example of how policy and private bigotry intersect. Why do we have white flight? We have white flight because white middle-class families look at African-Americans and they see poor people, they see less educated people, Uh, they see people who are living in overcrowded, uh, sometimes even slum conditions, And they say they don't want their own children to be exposed or even influenced by those kinds of conditions. Well, how did those conditions get created? They got created because African Americans were concentrated in low-income neighborhoods without access to jobs or opportunity. In many cases, once these ghettos were created by public policy, the cities refused to uh, provide the kinds of services to those communities that... uh, other communities got. Families who had no access to federal mortgage guarantees, African Americans, the kinds of mortgage guarantees that white families had, couldn't afford the same kinds of housing that white families could. So they had to double and triple up in order to be able to afford housing. Uh, All of these conditions were created by policy. Whites looked at these conditions they didn't understand that they were policy created rather than the inherent characteristics of the people who are living in Mm -hmm. these conditions, and they wanted to flee from them. But were it not for the policies that were creating these disparate conditions between African Americans and whites, whites would not have had the same uh, uh, stereotypes of African Americans that they developed.
1: Uh, And I'm going to tell you, when I talk with my black friends about the rankings they were not surprised. When I talked with my white friends, they were flabbergasted. Uh-huh. They could not believe it. And it was just such a different perspective, and we all live in the same community.
0: How do you think they were able to shield themselves from that? Is it because they live in a bubble? hmm uh-huh. Yeah. Cherie Stevens, please uh, hold on there. She's from Making Conversations. Richard Rothstein is with us also. He's from the Economic Policy Institute and author of The Color of Law and Lee Formwald, author of Looking Back, Moving Forward. All of them. We're going to take a quick break and leave you with Syl Johnson. Is it because I'm black? This is featuring Ginger Baker. And continue the conversation after a short break. So stick around. On Second Thought, we'll be right back.
1: Looking back over my first dreams that I once knew. And why my dreams never came true Is it because I'm black?
2: Uh-huh.
0: Somebody tell me What can I do? We're back with On Second Thought from Georgia Public Broadcasting. I'm Virginia Prescott. When you found your home, did you notice or consider how many African-Americans, whites, Asians, or Hispanics lived in that neighborhood? Well, research suggests that even if we're not talking about race, we're still thinking about it. Turns out families are living and working in communities where everyone looks mostly the same. Last month, 24-7 Wall Street, financial content company, released a report identifying the 25 most segregated cities in America. Four of them are in Georgia, including one in the top five. Well, we're continuing our conversation about how we got here and why that segregation persists in America with Lee Formwalt, a former professor at Albany State, author of Looking Back, Moving Forward, and Cherie Stevens. She's host of the Macon Conversation Series at GPB Studio in Macon. Richard Rothstein is with us. He's author of The Color of the Law. That's a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. He's also narrator of a new animated short. It's called "Segregated by Design," available online. Okay, so I want to pick up here. Charisse just said something about how we live inside of these bubbles. We talked a little bit about policy, a little bit about perception, and the perception has really changed the market realities in many cases. Uh, Richard, you said, you know, the idea, there's this assumption that, well, if you live in a slum, it's that condition is inherent to African-American communities. I'd love to hear some examples of when people did that thing of moving into a neighborhood that they didn't think that they belonged in. Let's say, you know... um, You mentioned after the war, the G.I. Bill, not open to African-Americans. But are there examples of people who did break that kind of boundary?
2: Yes, there are many examples, and frequently they were pushed back. Uh, There were hundreds and hundreds of examples across the country of African-Americans who moved into white neighborhoods that were surrounding the black neighborhoods where they had been concentrated, Mob violence ensued, frequently protected by the police. Uh, The uh, African-Americans were frequently forced out of their homes. And as I say, there were hundreds and hundreds of these cases, every one of them, where the police protected mobs attacking African-Americans in the homes that they had legitimately bought was a civil rights violation. The police were violating their constitutional obligations when they protected these mobs. But in city after city, Mob violence protected by police drove African-Americans out of neighborhoods where they had bought. The African-Americans frequently were able to move into these white neighborhoods because it was to the interests of the white homeowners to sell to an African-American rather than to a white because the African-Americans were willing to pay more. For the same housing, then whites were willing to pay simply because their supply was so res- restricted. It was a simple question of supply and demand. So if you had a white neighborhood near where African-Americans were living and the white family wanted to move, maybe to get a bigger home, maybe because the family got a job elsewhere, and they put their home for sale on the market, in the mid-20th century, it was frequently the case that they would sell to an African-American rather than to a white because they could get more for it. But the consequence was very frequently, mob violence protected by police to drive African Americans out of those homes and back into the ghettos from which they were fleeing.
0: And we should note that this happened not in the South exclusively. In fact, almost all the cases that you cite in your book happened in northern cities.
2: Well, not all the cases, but you're right that this is as prevalent in the North as in the South, perhaps more prevalent in the North than in the South.
0: Well, okay, so let's talk a little bit about redlining, because this is another part of policy that evolved isolating black inner-city neighborhoods. It's, if you can refresh us on the idea of what redlining is, this discrimination, fencing off areas where banks would avoid investment based on community demographics. How is this sure. distinct from the policies that you
2: talked about earlier? Sure. Well, what I've been describing up to now was the refusal of the federal government particularly the federal housing administration to ensure mortgages for african americans in white neighborhoods that is requiring developers of all white neighborhoods to refuse to sell to african americans redlining is the other side of the coin it's the refusal of banks and uh, uh, other uh, private actors to invest in black neighborhoods The term redlining comes also from a federal program. In 1934, a federal agency called the Homeowners Loan Corporation during the Depression was set up to refinance the mortgages of families, and of course these were almost all white because they were homeowners, uh, Refinance the mortgages of families who were about to be foreclosed during the Depression. In order to do that, they drew maps of every metropolitan area in the country. And they colored red the areas where they thought uh, the federal government would be at too great a risk by insuring new mortgages for families who were about to be foreclosed in those neighborhoods. The neighborhoods that were colored red were neighborhoods where African Americans were living. And so the term redlining came to be known as uh, the separation of black uh, investment from uh, uh, white neighborhoods. Uh, Banks followed these federal guidelines, the um, maps, the redlining maps that were drawn by the Federal Housing Homeowners Loan Corporation, and refused to issue mortgages. Of course, they couldn't get Federal Housing Administration FHA guarantees for those mortgages, so they refused to issue mortgages. Insurance companies did the same in the neighborhoods that had been colored red. And if you look at these maps... That the Federal um, Homeowners Loan Corporation drew in the 1930s. There is an eerie parallel between where African Americans were concentrated and where they couldn't get mortgages and the patterns of segregation that exist still in these cities today.
0: Our colleague Grant Blankenship spoke with the former mayor of Macon, C. Jack Ellis, who was the first and has been the only black mayor of Macon, by the way, about redlining. Here he is in 2018 talking about the neighborhood where he grew up, redlined out of any federal bank investment. Homeownership was just out of their
3: reach. That was something that didn't even aspire. So until 1968, the fair, until the Fair Housing Act, you were limited, not only the house you could buy, but where you could buy it.
0: Lee, I wanted to just follow up on this with you because Richard described the practice of not lending to poor black homeowners or would-be homeowners. You uh, studied a similar discrimination in the agricultural sector. There was a big 1998 lawsuit in which black farmers, after a history of discrimination, sued the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Can you just run through that for us and talk about whether or not there are applications for what happened with homeowners as well?
3: That was a um, class action suit that was brought on behalf of black farmers who had been discriminated against in their efforts to get loans to help them with uh, climate problems or whatever. And uh, it was very clear that the courts realized that the white farmers in the same financial situation as the black farmers would get the loans and the black farmers would not. And so they settled the case And it reminded me of an event that happened 130 years earlier when a number of African-Americans who were fleeing from a massacre that had happened in Camilla, just south of Albany, were coming into Albany to the Freedmen's Bureau office and filing affidavits explaining what had happened, how they had been uh, surprised at the courthouse and uh, 12 or more were killed and 30 to 40 were wounded and then to be sitting there 130 years later and watching African Americans coming into Albany and filing affidavits about how they had been discriminated against by the federal government uh, was a uh, powerful uh, sign of how Things had not changed for Mm -hmm. African-Americans.
0: Were there no class action lawsuits on the scale of that farmer lawsuit against the USDA in opposition to decades of these kind of discriminatory policies in housing?
2: There were a few. One of them was eventually uh, successful in 1948. One of the things I hadn't mentioned before is that the Federal Housing Administration required developers of these all-white suburbs to place a clause in the deed of their homes prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. And many of your listeners, if they look at the deeds to their homes, they will see that this language prohibiting resale to non-Caucasians still exists. Well, in 1948, uh, the Supreme Court finally uh, uh, prohibited state courts from enforcing these deeds, from evicting African-Americans from homes that they had legitimately bought uh, 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 because they violated an exclusionary clause. But until that time, courts routinely evicted African-Americans from homes they had legitimately bought because those homes had deeds that prohibited ownership by an African-American.
0: Cherise, I want to pull you in here. Is this something that in growing up in Macon, we heard from Lee, the idea of the sort of freakishness of neighborhoods changing, of of one person or a black family moving in within a white neighborhood. What is it that might have encouraged or discouraged somebody from making that kind of move?
1: Um, Fear. Um, I know my grandmother, she grew up in Twix County. When she came to Bibb County, she bought a home she was um, segregated to the area that she could buy it from and one of the areas she wanted to buy a home um the first day when they kind of did a walk through they, they had people like he was saying literally four cars of white men stood out there waiting for her to come out and it scared her to death so she bought a home in the place that she could be um and and I'm sorry, it's it's very difficult being at the short end of the stick and seeing this personally in my family. How It's it's hard being black, I'll be honest. And it's hard being in these segregated communities because no matter how hard you try, it may be a policy. It may be prejudice. It may be so many things stacked against you. And how do you uh, move forward to, to get on an equal playing field? So I apologize. I'm uh hearing some of the facts, which I've known some have really hit me hard because, you know, what kind of solution can we have when it's so many things against these cities becoming more universal?
0: Yeah, well, I absolutely appreciate that you're bringing the real human experience to, you know, what we're hearing about in terms of policy. And, and, and also it speaks to the idea that, you know, even if you have, you know, um, The Fair Housing Act in 1968, even if you have Brown versus Board of Education, even if you have all of these kind of high-level policy decisions that were so, uh, those before them that were so detrimental to integration, you can't reverse those with laws. I mean, there are many, many, there are many things culturally, there are many things that keep that from moving forward. And I've actually read something this week about um, a program to help people from Predominantly black neighborhoods move into what they call high opportunity neighborhoods. You know, the finding is that if you are in a neighborhood where there are there's is much more mixed uh, sociodemographically, that there will be much more success. You will make more money in your life. You're li- much more likely to go to college, and many people make the choice not to do that.
2: If I may interject, though, something here: there are a number of places in this country where the kinds of programs uh, that, Virginia, you were talking about, which uh, help uh, low-income African Americans move to higher opportunity neighborhoods. And where those programs exist, the waiting lists are long. They're way oversubscribed. In fact, one of the reasons that we know that these programs are successful is because social scientists can compare the people who apply to these programs and get in and those who apply to these programs and don't get in. And the ones who apply to the programs and get in are much more successful throughout their lives, and their children are much more successful than the ones who unfortunately couldn't get in because the programs aren't large enough. There are also many, many programs that we could implement if we understood how unconstitutional um, our patterns of residence are and how important it is to remedy those. For example, we could be subsidizing African Americans – to buy homes in communities that are now unaffordable to them, but that would have been affordable to them had they been permitted by the federal government to enter them in the mid-20th century. That would be a very effective program that would help to dismantle the segregation that that we've created. So there are many programs. Policymakers are well familiar with them. What's absent today is the public support that's needed to implement these kinds of programs.
0: Well, Richard, you're bringing this up at a point when, you know, there are Democratic candidates on the stump now who are talking about the idea of reparations. So what, what are you talking about in terms of programs versus the whole concept of reparations, and how do you even begin that?
2: Yes, I don't use the term reparations because I think it doesn't explain really what uh, is involved. What we need is concrete policies, and it's easy to explain these that people understand. For example... Uh, The one I just gave, we could subsidize African-Americans who were prohibited, whose families, whose parents, whose grandparents were prohibited by federal law, uh, federal policy from living in white neighborhoods. We could subsidize them to purchase those homes uh, today uh, that are now unaffordable to working class families of either race. We have a federal program that uh, subsidizes today uh, housing for low income families. Uh, disproportionately minority. It's called the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. Those uh, uh, apartments that are subsidized by the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit are placed disproportionately in existing low-income segregated neighborhoods, and the Federal Treasury Department, which issues these tax credits, places a priority in placing uh, subsidized apartments in already low-income segregated neighborhoods. That's backwards. Uh, We shouldn't uh, not build apartments in low-income segregated neighborhoods, we should try to improve those neighborhoods, but we certainly shouldn't be building a disproportionate share of apartments, uh, subsidized apartments in low-income segregated neighborhoods. We should also be building them in high-opportunity places so these long waiting lists of people who want to move to higher-opportunity places can be fulfilled. So the policies are, as I say, easy to understand if they're described in concrete terms. A term like reparations doesn't really tell what we're talking about, and uh, I'd rather talk about the specific policies that we should be following.
0: I'd be curious to hear from Lee and Sharice about the concept of reparations in this case.
3: Well, I think that we should use the term reparations. It's uh, now being championed by a number of Democratic candidates for president, and it makes sense. I never thought of reparations as being payments to individuals who could trace their ancestry back to slavery, but rather helping eliminate the problems that came about because of Jim Crow segregation and how those policies hurt the lives of African Americans. So I think that the policies that Richard is talking about are good and and it seems to me that we should say this can be a way of America paying back for the discrimination that it practiced in the past.
1: Yeah, and it's it's 2019 is the 400th year that slaves were brought here uh, to America. And I think in using the word reparation, if we can't stomach some of those conversations, there's no way that we're going to be able to put the policies in place to really make amends for that ugly part of our history.
0: Cherie Stevens there in Macon, CEO at Georgia Wellness and Fitness Festival, host of Macon Conversations series. Also with us, Richard Rothstein, distinguished fellow at the Economic Policy Institute, author of The Color of Law, and Lee Formwalt speaking with us from Indiana, former professor at Albany State University. This is On Second Thought. We will leave you with Billy Paul's Am I Black Enough for You? as we head into the break. Stay with us for more of On Second Thoughts. We're back with On Second Thought from GPP. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we've been speaking about the roots and ripples of housing segregation in the U.S. As a reminder, we're having the conversation because a report from 24-7 Wall Street placed four Georgia cities among the 25 most segregated in the United States. Atlanta, Sandy Springs, Roswell, Columbus, Georgia, Macon, and coming in at number three, Albany, Georgia. So we've been talking with guests about what contributed to and perpetuated segregation nationwide here in Georgia, and also about the effects, both social and political and, and, and self-perception as we're hearing from Cherise Stevens, a host of the Make and Conversation series, Lee Formwalt, former professor at Albany State University, and Richard Rothstein, distinguished fellow at the Economic Policy Institute, author of The Color of Law, and also a narrator of a new short animated film called Segregated by Design, which really unpacks a lot of information very quickly. So I want to get back to this kind of idea of the wealth gap that is created by generations of segregated housing. It's something that you unpack in your book a lot, Richard, the difference between what people who are allowed or who are given the resources to build home equity and those who aren't. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Certainly. Over the course of the late 20th century, The Federal Housing Administration subsidized whites to move into all-white suburbs, permitting them to buy homes very inexpensively, the homes in the mid-20th century that the Federal Housing Administration was subsidizing for mostly returning war veterans typically cost twice national median income, maybe $75,000 to $100,000. Today, those homes sell for four hundred, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000 in some areas. The white families gained wealth from that. The black families who were prohibited from participating in this policy, even though they could easily have afforded to buy those homes, uh, gained none of that wealth. The result is that today, African-American incomes, on average, are about 60%, 60% of white incomes. But African American wealth is only five to ten percent of white wealth, and that enormous disparity between the sixty percent income ratio and the ten percent wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that has never been remedied, and requires remedy because it's unconstitutional. You know, we understand that when a civil rights violation is created by federal, state, or local governments, we have to remedy it. Housing is one area where we've never applied that understanding that we all share. And once we understand that the wealth gap, uh, the segregation, uh, the inequality was created not because African-Americans are less motivated or um, not because they don't work as hard, uh, not because they don't try as hard, but because of federal, state, and local policy that created inequality, once we understand that, we can begin to adopt and enact the kinds of policies necessary to remedy it.
0: Well, the the result of these decades and decades of segregation and separateness of the races and in unequal treatment uh, have contributed to so many different things. You know, school segregation, school redistricting in the um, in the contemporary context. What this has resulted in, however, is this idea that there are places of value where there are homes. There's a tax base where there is money generated for schools, for public services, for public works, has furthered, I, I, I should think, the inequity. So what does that mean in terms of education and how that manifests today? Sharice, uh, I don't know if that's something that you want to pick up there in Macon um, or not. I, I don't know. I, I think it's going to take
1: Uh, more than money it's going to take the appetite for people to have honest conversations. And I'm so thankful that you have this conversation going on, but it's going to be a lot of things that are needed to be put in place before we can actually really have a strategic plan and making these communities more diverse. And I'm not trying to be the pessimist of this conversation, but also because my family personally have lived through a lot of this. I have as well. It, it's just so many layers to it um, that it's kind of hard to see what could be the, the ultimate solution.
0: Well, I know that there in Macon, you're working with Making Conversations. So you are one of the people who is motivating real conversations about race between people who don't normally interact with each other. Mm-hmm. But also in Macon, it's, I think I've read that it's, you know, the place with the most churches per capita than any other place. And I know that there are churches that are trying to do things outside of their communities to help people purchase homes, to help create different kinds of communities, short of... A big shift, you know, an idea of reparations of some form or remedies that Richard talked about. Is that where the action is going to come from? These smaller organizations trying to change the way that we look at how we live in segregated places.
1: Well, just in Macon uh, on Sundays, we're sometimes the most segregated because we have so many, quote unquote, white churches and black churches. We do have some churches that are doing some really great things in the community. But until you have the funding and resources, um, like he was talking about the down payment for black families, it's got to be some it's got to have policies and, and programs that got some teeth to it, because if not, it's, it's not going to work. It's just been too many things from redlining, segregation, the whole nine yards, that it's not an even playing field. You know, it's got to be something done to even the playing field so home buying opportunities can be um, given to, to black families.
0: James Baldwin, the writer and intellectual, also alluded to that Martin Luther King quote of the most segregated hour in America being high noon on Sunday. Here is Baldwin, in fact, responding to Yale philosophy professor Paul Weiss. This was on the Dick Cavett show back in 1968.
2: I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks that give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children on some idealism which you assure me exists in America,
0: which I have never seen. James Baldwin there on how segregation permeated all aspects of American life. Richard we've talked a lot about why segregation existed, why it has persisted. You know, first policy, uh, the the influence of perception, market values, how that has shifted. But what is the cost of a continually segregated society? How are we paying for that?
2: Yes, residential segregation underlies the most serious social problems that we face in this country. We talk a lot about the achievement gap in schools, that African Americans have lower average achievement in schools than uh, whites do. But that's entirely because we're concentrating the most disadvantaged young people, uh, mostly minority young people, most disadvantaged young people in single neighborhoods, uh, without jobs, uh, without opportunity, uh, overcrowded, Uh, they go to schools that are segregated because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated, and they overwhelm the ability of the schools to deal with these enormous social problems they come with. So the achievement gap in schools is one of the consequences of residential segregation. We know there are enormous health disparities between African-Americans and whites in part because African-Americans live in more dangerous, more polluted neighborhoods, uh, more unhealthy air, less access to healthy food because they're food deserts where where big supermarkets don't locate. So the health disparities between African-Americans and whites where African-Americans have shorter life expectancies, greater rates of heart disease is a consequence of residential segregation. The violence that we see that uh, results in the mass incarceration of uh, disproportionately of young African-American men uh, could not happen if we were not concentrating uh, the most disadvantaged young men in single separate neighborhoods without access to jobs, without access to transportation to get to those jobs, where they are inevitably going to get into confrontations with the police. That could not happen if we didn't have residential segregation. And I'd suggest uh, further to you, Virginia, that The very, very dangerous political polarization that we have in this country, which largely tracks racial lines, Mm -hmm. uh, is largely a consequence of residential segregation. How can we possibly ever develop the common national identity that we need to survive as a democracy if so many African-Americans and so many whites live so far from each other that they have no ability to empathize with each other, to understand each other's life experiences? So all of these problems of inequality have their roots in residential segregation. We had a civil rights movement in the 20th century that addressed uh, legal segregation in schools and colleges and water fountains and buses and uh, interstate transportation. We never addressed residential segregation. We had this myth that it all happened by accident, that it was de facto. And what we need uh, is a new civil rights movement that's going to pick up with the last one uh, let off and um, address the issue of residential segregation. It's not going to happen. I, I appreciate the importance of having conversations, but we need activism of the kind that we had in the 1950s and 1960s that accomplished the desegregation of other areas of American life.
0: Lee, I think that's something that you might welcome. But where do you think we go? Where, where do we move forward and get beyond the kind of racial isolation that exists in America today?
3: Yeah, I think that one of the key factors is that whites have to begin to really understand the privilege that they have had their lives and the lives of their ancestors. Until whites understand that privilege, they will not begin to be able to understand the African-American experience. And I found that for me, as a white man teaching at a historically black college, That was the greatest gift I ever received. I didn't feel that way when I started, but it quickly became clear to me that I was learning so much more than what I was teaching my students. And uh, I think that we have to encourage whites to explore how they have intentionally or unintentionally exploited their position of supremacy in American society
0: we do know that you know now um, in recent polls 2016 17 18 all consistent the the idea that a good percentage of white people think that they are the most oppressed minority uh. in america now sharice i know this is something that comes up for you a lot in the making conversation series you know how do you how do you get over that hang up how do you get over that hurdle of perception
1: um You know, we're talking about conversations. I've actually talked to a few people who thought they were oppressed. And then I asked them, well, how are you depressed? And how are you discriminated? And they couldn't give me a simple example. They couldn't give me one example. It was just a generic, I am oppressed. And then on the flip side, I would tell them some of the ways that as a young mother, I didn't even go into the store with a diaper bag or a purse because I would get stopped so many times. Uh, to see if I was, quote, unquote, stealing, Mm. that I couldn't be a regular mom, you know. So as we share stories and people understand what is oppression, what is discrimination, what is racism, what is segregation, uh, I think that level of empathy and understanding what the other person is saying. um, But I think I hope that each of these cities that are on the segregation list really look locally, of what they can do. It's great that we can look at federal policies, but I know that our they don't have the appetite for the conversation we need to have on reparations and things we need to do. But locally, hopefully, because you, know, you may know your mayor, you may know your county commissioners more personally, that some of these policies can maybe be put in place that we can um, start making a difference.
0: Mm. Can you imagine that happening without the kind of activism that Richard was talking about? Mm
1: -mm. No, we need activism. It's great that we're having conversations. And I see it with my my children as well and and millennials. I see them being more active. uh, And we need a a second civil rights on the residential. I, I totally agree with him on that point.
0: Can you imagine an integrated Macon in your lifetime?
1: Not in my lifetime, but I am hoping in my children's lifetime that they can um, they can see it. It's just a lot of hurdles, and and to be quite honest, I walk around and I can see the despair in people's face. Can you imagine? You're you're poor. You're black. People think the worst of you. You don't have the same economic uh, opportunities but then you have to act a certain way. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just a lot, to be quite honest. And I see the despair in my fellow Maconites and also
0: other communities around
1: here, and something's just got to change.
0: Cherise Stevens over in Macon, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Cherise is host of the Macon Conversation series. Also with us, Lee Formwald, former professor at Albany State University, author of Looking Back, Moving Forward. Lee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And Richard Rothstein, really a pleasure hearing from you. Distinguished Fellow at the Economic Policy Institute, thank you for your time. Thank you. Richard is also author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. You can see a short film, it's 17 minutes long, called Segregated by Design, that outlines some of his ideas online for free at segregatedbydesign.com. That is our show for today. We're going to hand it over to Bobby Womack with uh, across 110 Street. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, and Jake Troyer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Allison Kraussman. Our engineer is Jesse Neiswonger. Don Smith is our dean of grammar, and Amy Kylie is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought from GBB. The on
2: the
3: upper side of town. catch hay.
1: Without we'll a ghetto around, and every city you will find the same thing going down. Harlem oh, is the capital of every ghetto town. Every second, it falls up under the district.